Good morning. If you want to take your seats, we can uh, get started. I'm Jim Dorn, Vice President for Monetary Studies at the Cato Institute. It's a pleasure to welcome you here for our 33rd Annual Monetary Conference. Um, this actually is the first conference under the hosting of our new Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. So that's a, a big deal for us. And uh, John Allison, who is our uh, former CEO, now <laughs> retired, uh, was instrumental in setting up the Center about a year ago. He's now serving as the chairman of our Executive Advisory Council. So John, are you, uh, I guess you're sitting down someplace, but thank you very much. Um, and thank you also for the, to the speakers. Uh, some have traveled uh, pretty far to come here today, and we appreciate that, and we appreciate uh, uh, everyone in the audience uh, attending today as well. Um, before I get started, I just wanted to thank our staff, too. Uh, you couldn't do an event like this. It takes about a year to plan it without a top-notch staff, and uh, many people have helped. I can mention just a few. Rachel Green, Mackenzie Johnson, Alyssa Hagens, Lydia Mashburn, uh, Ari Blask, uh, Bob Garber and his team, uh, Brian Mullis, uh, John Myers, and uh, as I say, many others. So thanks very much. And I wanted to start with a little story. Uh, I'm giving my welcome remarks. Sorry, I don't have any slides, but everybody's got slides today. Uh, ben Bernanke was here twice. He was here before he was chairman of the Fed, and then he was here after he was chairman. And the first talk he gave here after he was chairman, which is fairly soon after he became chairman, uh, there was an elderly gentleman in the audience, and um, during the Q&A, he raised his hand, and he said, I've never asked the chairman of the Federal Reserve a question before. And Bernanke stared straight at him and said, well, don't blow it. Uh, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's nice to see that uh, the head of the world's most powerful central bank has a sense of humor, because they certainly need it. Uh, after seven years of zero interest rate policy and three rounds of quantitative easing, real GDP growth is still sluggish. Uh, the zero rates and large asset purchases were supposed to create a wealth effect and stimulate real growth. The monetary base has increased dramatically along with the Fed's balance sheet, but the monetary transmission mechanism seems to be plugged up by interest on excess reserves, macro prudential uh, regulation, and re regime uncertainty. Uh, conventionally measured inflation is low, but Fed policy has encouraged risk-taking and helped inflate financial asset prices. And Fed watching has become an obsession, uh, diverting resources away from more productive uses. We should remember that money creation is not a panacea. I mean, uh, Bernanke used to always say monetary policy is not a panacea. Uh, it can't lead to a permanent increase in society's productive capacity or create new wealth. Once rates return to normal, so will asset prices. The Fed's wealth effect is really a pseudo-wealth effect in that, in that sense. Uh, any benefits of unconventional monetary policy must be weighed against its costs. And let me name a few. Increased risk-taking, misallocation of credit, politicization of investment decisions, Decreased private saving and investment, subsidization of government debt, asset bubbles, and last but not least, inequality. And of course, 
from a theoretical and uh, academic standpoint, the Phillips curve is dead, but it still lives in, uh, in, uh, on the uh, Fed models. Uh, unemployment's fallen from about 10% to 5%, but inflation has remained less than 2%. There doesn't seem to be any trade-off there. Finally, there has been an enormous increase in the Fed's power. Uh, the case for ending unconventional monetary policy and normalizing interest rates leads to a deeper issue, namely how to shape institutions and incentives to achieve a harmonious system of money and banking. That's a fundamental question Cato's newly established Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives seeks to address. I hope today's discussion with our distinguished speakers will shed light on what monetary policy can and can't do, what rules could improve the operation of our monetary and financial system, and what steps should be taken to safeguard our property rights in a sound currency. Uh, as usual, the proceedings of this conference will be published in the Cato Journal later on. Uh, there's some copies of past conference papers in the Cato Journal. And uh, I wanted to bring your attention to our center's uh, just release brochure, which uh, pictured George Washington. You can't go wrong there. Uh, <laughs> and uh, check out also our blog, Alt-M, which our director of the center, George Selgin, who's here today and will be give, giving a paper, uh, uh, manages and writes a lot of uh, very good columns for it. Also, for you birds that tweet, um, the hashtag, I'm told to say the hashtag today, is CatoMC15. Um, so let's get started. Um, we're delighted to have, as our keynote speaker, James Bullard, who joined the St. Louis Fed as a research economist in 1990 and was appointed president and CEO in April 2008. Great time to start. <laughs> um, he succeeded uh, William Poole, uh, who's now a uh, senior, uh, Cato senior fellow, and uh, setting a good example. And uh, Jim Bullard has called for a rules-based approach to monetary policy with a focus on long-run price stability, which he believes would promote full employment. He favors looking at headline inflation rather than core inflation. And he has been a voting member of the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee. Although he's not serving on the committee, he supports, at this point, normalizing interest rates. And we'll probably find out whether he still does that today. He also recognizes that, quote, the Fed cannot permanently raise stock prices, uh, close quote. Uh, you know, that seems obvious, uh, but the markets watch the Fed very closely even for a 25 uh, basis point uh, change in the uh, Fed funds rate. His research has appeared in numerous professional journals, including the American Economic Review, the Journal of Monetary Economics, and the Journal of Money, Credit, and Banking. <clears throat> um, President Bullard holds a PhD in economics from Indiana University, and uh, probably a basketball fan, I guess. Uh, please help me welcome President Bullard. Sure, this is going to work here. 
Okay, well, maybe uh, the slide will get advanced as we go along. So great to be here this morning, uh, uh, and I'm anxious to give this talk to you. I'm going to leave the title slide up there for a while because we worked a long time on the title. So, uh, <laughs> and it might be the best part of the talk. So maybe you should just uh, you should just go with the title and then uh, check your check your email after that. Um, no, I'm, I, it's a pleasure to be here, and I did want to use this opportunity to talk about this topic, uh, PermaZero. And I, those of you that know me know that I usually just give a slideshow. Uh, I actually wrote out a speech here, so you're going to have to suffer through me uh, going through the speech. But I think it'll be fun anyway. And I'm looking forward to uh, the questions I might get from this, uh, from this audience here. So uh, please be jotting down what, what you might want to ask. It's a pleasure to be here today to discuss this important conference topic, Rethinking uh, Monetary Policy. The financial crisis of 2007 to 2009 and its aftermath turned monetary economics and policymaking on its head and called into question many of the conventional views held before the crisis. One of the most popular and enduring views in all of monetary economics since the 1970s and indeed since the 1940s has been that a nominal interest rate peg is poor monetary policy and that attempts to pursue such a policy would lean to ruin. Yet post-crisis U.S. monetary policy could be interpreted as exactly that, an interest rate peg, and an extreme one at that, since the policy rate has remained near zero for uh, nearly seven years. In this talk, I will summarize some recent academic work on the idea of a stable interest rate peg and what its implications may be for current monetary policy choices. I will argue that a stable interest rate peg is a realistic theoretical possibility that it has some mild empirical support based on a cursory look at the data, and that should we find ourselves in a persistent state of low nominal interest rates and low inflation, some of our fundamental assumptions about how US monetary policy works may have to be altered. So this next section is called my current policy recommendations, and this is so that uh, no one gets confused about uh, where I stand here. So let me begin by describing briefly my current monetary policy recommendations. We're not up, up to this chart yet, so we've got we to leave the perma-zero on the, on the screen. Um, <clears throat> let me begin by briefly describing my current monetary policy recommendations. So those of you that have followed my commentary during 2015 know that I've been an advocate of ending the FOMC's near-zero interest rate policy. <clears throat> my case <clears throat> excuse me, has been straightforward. Essentially, I've argued that while the committee's goals have been met, the committee's policy settings remain as extreme as they have been at any time since the recession ended in 2009. With respect to the goals, the current unemployment rate of 5% is statistically indistinguishable from the committee's view of the equilibrium long-run rate of unemployment. In addition, current year-over-year -year inflation, while low, reflects an outsized oil price shock that occurred during 2014. A measure that tries to control for this effect, the Dallas Fed's trim mean inflation rate, measured year over year, is currently running at 1.7%, just 30 basis points below the FOMC's target of 2%. By these measures, the committee's goals have been met. On the other hand, the committee's policy settings remain far from normal. The policy rate remains near zero, and the balance sheet is very large relative to its pre-crisis levels. In the past, the committee has acted to normalize policy well before goals have been completely met. 
A simple and prudent approach to current policy is to move the policy settings closer to normal levels now that the goals have been attained. There's no reason to continue to experiment with extreme policy settings. Implicit in the argument that I just laid out is the desire to return to the 1984 to 2007 U.S. macroeconomic equilibrium, which involved relatively good monetary policy, relatively long economic expansions, and a higher nominal interest rate structure than we have today. Part of the nature of that equilibrium was a monetary policy that was relatively well understood by both financial market participants and monetary policymakers. We gained much experience with the equilibrium over this time period, and we think we know how it works, in part because it's been studied extensively from both a theoretical and empirical perspective. The next section is called Rethinking Monetary Policy. <clears throat> Nevertheless, the topic of this conference <clears throat> is Rethinking Monetary Policy, and because of that, I plan to devote the bulk of my remarks not to the return to the standard macroeconomic equilibrium that I recommend, but to the possibility that such a return is not achieved, despite the committee's best efforts to engineer such an outcome for the U.S. economy. We have, after all, been at the zero lower bound in the U.S. for seven years. In addition, the FOMC has repeatedly stressed that any policy rate increase in the coming quarters and years is likely to be more gradual than either the 1994 cycle or the 2004 to 2006 cycle. In short, the FOMC is already committed to a very low nominal interest rate environment over the forecast horizon of two to three years. Perhaps short-term nominal interest rates will simply be low during this period, or perhaps the economy will encounter a negative shock that will propel policy back toward the zero lower bound. Our experience is not unique. In Japan, the policy rate has not been higher than 50 basis points for more than two decades. And in the Eurozone, the policy rate looks set to remain near zero at least through September 2016. The thrust of this talk is to suppose, for the sake of argument, that the zero interest rate policy, or ZERP, or alternatively a near ZERP policy, remains a persistent feature of the US economy. How should we think about monetary policy monetary stabilization policy in such an environment? What sorts of considerations should be paramount? Should we expect slow growth? Will we continue to have low inflation, or will inflation rise? Would we be at more risk of financial asset price volatility? What types of concrete po policy decisions could be made to cope with such an environment? Would it require a rethinking of US monetary policy? I will provide answers to all of these questions. <laughs> But first, I want to argue that it may indeed be possible to converge to an equilibrium at the zero lower bound, and that this situation has some surprising consequences. Chief among these consequences is that the policy itself may put downward pressure on inflation in the medium and long term rather than upward pressure as conventionally thought. This is a simple consequence of the Fisher equation having to hold in concert with monetary neutrality. I will now turn to developing this point. So this section is called PERMA-ZERO. Most analyses of US monetary policy since the crisis of 2007 to 2009 have suggested that ZERP in the US economy is a temporary affair, one that was part of an important set of policy actions designed to mitigate a particularly large shock to the US economy. But how temporary is it? As I've said, we've been at the zero lower bound for nearly seven years. 
This is well beyond ordinary business cycle time. Normally, we would think of a shock hitting the economy with the effects of the shock largely wearing off well within a seven-year time span. What are the consequences of spending such a long time with a policy rate at one value? Arguably, this is an interest rate peg. In the 1970s and 1980s, the typical reply to this question was that an interest rate peg was poor policy. Trying to keep the nominal interest policy rate unnaturally low for too long a period would ultimately be inflationary, and indeed, this was widely viewed as a large part of the problem leading to global inflation during this era. Indeed, during the past six years, I have warned, along with many others, that the committee's ZERP has put the economy at considerable risk of future inflation. In fact, my monitor's background urges me to continue to make this warning right this very instant. <clears throat> but after seven years, one might want to consider other models. One important possibility is that the 1970s were an era when US monetary policy was not very credible with respect to fighting inflation, whereas the 2000s were an era when US monetary policy had already earned a lot of credibility for keeping inflation low and stable. One way to interpret this is to say that market expectations of future inflation today move to stay in line with the FOMC's desired policy rate instead of becoming unanchored as they did in the 1970s. In particular, this would mean that a low nominal interest rate peg, far from being a harbinger of runaway inflation, would instead dictate medium and longer run low inflation outcomes. This theme is sometimes labeled, uh, quote, neo-Fisherian, end quote, because it emphasizes that the Fisher equation holds in virtually all modern macroeconomic models. The Fisher equation states that the nominal interest rate can be decomposed into a real interest rate component and an expected inflation component. If we view the real interest rate as determined by supply and demand conditions in the private sector, then a permanent nominal interest rate peg would also pin down the long-run rate of inflation. The Fisher equation implies, among other things, that the monetary authority cannot choose the long-run value of the nominal policy interest rate separately from the long-run value of inflation. This Fisher effect is well known and not likely to be disputed in macroeconomic circles. However, <clears throat> how long before this Fisher effect sets in? Over what time period can the monetary authority maintain an interest rate peg before the peg itself begins to pull inflation expectations in a direction consistent with the peg? Is seven years a sufficient length of time? How about 20 years, as in Japan? <clears throat> so this next section is called Cochrane, <coughs> Cochrane 2015. Uh, this refers to John Cochran, who I think is also a fellow here, right? Um, a new paper by John Cochran in 2015 provides an interesting analysis of this issue in the context of the most canonical of modern macroeconomic models, the linearized three-equation New Keynesian model. I will not provide any details of the model here, but for those that are unfamiliar with it, I will briefly describe its essential ingredients. The key friction in the model is that prices are sticky, meaning they do not adjust immediately in response to supply and demand conditions. Households and firms solve optimization problems, taking the friction as given. The policymaker controls a one-period nominal interest rate, and through this channel can have temporary effects on real output and inflation. 
the Fisher equation holds at all times. The model can be described by a three, a three simple equations that depend on expectations of future real output, future inflation, and future monetary policy. The spirit of Cochrane's analysis is to suggest that neo-Fisherian effects are part of even the most ordinary of macroeconomic models used to inform current monetary policy. Cochrane uses a solution technique for the model due to Ivan Warning uh, of MIT. We can think of the economy as continuing from the distant past to the distant future. The policymaker simply chooses the entire short-term nominal interest rate sequence, and given this sequence, the model traces out what would happen to the real output gap, which is called X in the figure here in, in, that's coming up, and inflation pi. Uh, let's go back one figure here. Figure one, yes. I use Cochrane's model to trace out the effects on the economy of the following thought experiment. Suppose the economy begins with a nominal interest rate equal to 2%, a real interest rate equal to 0% for convenience, and an inflation rate equal to 2%. The Fisher equation holds as it must so that in the long run the policy rate will equal the inflation rate in this example because I've got the real rate equal to zero. The policymaker then lowers the policy rate by 200 basis points to zero and leaves it there for a very long time. Figure one illustrates the effects of such a policy experiment in Cochrane's 2015 model. The green triangles in this picture show the policy rate, which begins at 200 basis points uh, uh, and then is lowered to zero at date zero, which is in the middle of this figure. If the policy move is anticipated, as many actual policy moves are, then the effects on inflation are described by the red squares, and the effects on the real output gap are uh, given by the black circles. If the policy change is completely unanticipated, then the effects on inflation are given by the magenta squares, and the effects on the real output gap are given by the blue circles. In the case of a surprise policy move, nothing happens until the date of the move, whereupon the inflation and real output gap variables jump to the path they would have been on had the policy change been known in advance. For our purposes here, it does not matter that much if we focus on an anticipated or an unanticipated policy change. Instead, I want to focus on the right-hand side of this picture after the policy uh, move has occurred. The policymaker has lowered the policy rate to zero, and in response, the real output gap has increased. Output, real output has gone up. This is one way to gauge the real effects of monetary policy according to the model. A pure change in the policy rate with no other shocks occurring would temporarily increase output. This is what the model is designed to do, if, and if we added more shocks to the model, the policymaker could use this power appropriately to smooth real output over time. Smoother output would be preferred to more volatile output by the households in the model, and thus the model provides a theory of monetary stabilization policy. But now let, let us look at inflation in response to the policy change. Those are the, uh, this is the red line in this picture. It falls in response to the policy change, very little at first, but more substantially as the zero interest rate policy continues. After about 2.5 years or 10 quarters, and this is a quarterly model, so 10 quarters is way out at the right side of this picture, 
the transitory effects of the policy change have nearly completely died out. The real output gap is zero, the policy rate remains at zero, and the inflation rate has fallen to zero. This can be interpreted as a neo-Fisherian result. The policy rate is lowered, and after some transitory dynamics, the inflation rate falls to be consistent with the new interest rate peg. It is clear from figure one that should the policymakers simply elect to keep the nominal interest rate at zero for a much longer time, nothing further would happen in this economy. The black, red, and green lines would simply remain at zero. In Cochrane's analysis, as I have translated it into figure one, uh, yields a very different interpretation of current events compared to conventional wisdom. Conventional descriptions of current monetary policy, including my own earlier in this speech, suggest that the committee's ZERP is putting upward pressure on inflation, and perhaps dangerously so. Figure one suggests otherwise. What's going on? The model does have a Phillips curve in that today's inflation rate does depend in part on today's real output gap. When the policy rate is lowered, the output gap is higher than it would otherwise have been, and this does put upward pressure on inflation in the model. However, the model also has a Fisher equation, which means that the real output gap returns to normal, that is, monetary neutrality asserts itself. The inflation, at that point, the inflation rate will have to fall to be consistent with the new level of the nominal rate. Another aspect is that the policymaker is viewed as choosing the interest rate sequence, and inflation follows as dictated by the Fisher equation. The policymaker cannot set the nominal interest rate and the inflation target in an inconsistent way. A few of you may be aware of a closely related analysis by uh, Benabib Schmickrow in Uribe, 2001, that I have championed in discussing dimensions of monetary policy since 2007 to 2009. In that analysis, the Fisher relation also plays a prominent role, but the analysis is nonlinear and global. Benabib et al. find two steady states, one of which is associated with a low nominal interest rate and inflation below target. If you do it that way, then you get into arguments uh, that center around which of those two steady states is a stable one and a reasonable, reasonable expectation dynamic, sometimes called learning. Often the argument is that the traditional steady state is the stable one and therefore the one worthy of the most attention from policymakers. The Cochrane analysis doesn't have any of this. It is of a linear system, and consequently ideas about, quote, getting stuck at the wrong steady state, unquote, are not nearly as clear. And rational expectations prevails at all times. To illustrate that policymakers can reverse their actions in the Cochrane model, figure two, which we're going to go to now, illustrates an alternative policy experiment. This experiment is almost the same as the one described in figure one, except that the policymaker chooses the nominal interest rate sequence to remain at zero for seven years before gradually uh, raising the policy rate back to 2%. So this picture here. So the left-hand side of figure two simply repeats what is in figure one. The middle portion of figure two shows how the case uh, where the policy rate remains at zero simply keeps the inflation rate low and the output gap steady as the effects of the first policy move wear off. The gradually, gradual policy rate increase is shown in the far right-hand portion of figure two via the green triangles. The, this policy move is portrayed as being anticipated in this picture so that inflation and the output gap begin to react before the actual date of liftoff. So you can see the date of liftoff in the green there, and you can see that the other two lines move somewhat in advance of that. The rising uh, 
rate environment puts downward pressure on the output gap, reversing the effects of the previous policy rate move on the left-hand part of the chart. As before, inflation moves in tandem with the policy rates as the Fisher equation uh, reasserts itself. <clears throat> so now you're wondering, is this what will actually happen in the economy? Uh, definitely not, since we are looking here at pure policy effects with no other shocks added to the model. At best, figures one and two can illustrate the directions that monetary policy can be expected to push and in this particular model, but a more realistic analysis would include additional shocks and monetary policy would have to react appropriately to those changes in macroeconomic conditions. Still, the key point is that this canonical model has a clear interpretation in neo-Fisherian terms and that this interpretation is hardly surprising since the Fisher equation is built into the model. I've spent a lot of my time with these particular figures because I think they're interesting and can communicate to a wide audience within the monetary policymaking community. But I do want to stress that the new Keynesian model is just one model in a sea of uh, possibilities. I'm going to go to the next section here, which is called empirical evidence. Uh, so I'm skipping a paragraph, which is really a commercial. So, uh, so this, this is called empirical evidence. This is figure three, and there are only f three figures in this talk. Figures one and two suggest that low nominal interest rates and low inflation may go hand in hand, at least over relatively long horizons in which the policy rate is kept at a constant level. Over shorter horizons, with more policy moves and more shocks, the correlation may not be very high. Policy rates have generally been very low, or near zero, continuously in the G7 economy since 2007 to 2009. Consequently, we may be able to look at the data since 2009 to see to what extent neo-fisherian effects are exerting themselves in the G7. To get at this issue in just one picture, figure three shows the centered five-quarter moving average of the G7 headline inflation rate and the average GDP-weighted G7 nominal interest rate since 2002. In figure three, the inflation rate is the solid line on the right-hand scale, and the GDP-weighted nominal policy rate is the dotted line on the left-hand scale. The horizontal green line is an inflation rate of 2%, and the horizontal black line is an inflation rate of negative 1%. The vertical line in the middle of the figure marks the Lehman AIG event. On the left part of figure three, Interest rates and inflation arguably behaved according to traditional interpretations of the new Keynesian theory. On the right half of figure three, the nominal policy rate falls to near zero and remains there. Inflation initially falls across the G7, but then, impressively in my mind, returns to target. In fact, inflation was above target as of the beginning of 2012, about two and a half years after the end of the recession in the US. Since then, however, policy rates have remained near zero and inflation has drifted down to the point where G G7 inflation is around zero today. So that's the far right point in this picture, and that's the most favorable for the neo-Fisherian uh, theory. Conventional wisdom would have suggested that policy rates Zero policy rates in the G7 were putting upward pressure on inflation during the nearly four years since January 2012, but instead, inflation fell. This could be viewed as consistent with neo-fisherian effects asserting themselves. Of course, we have to be cautious about carrying such an ex explanation too far. There have been many other shocks during the last four years, 
notably the very large oil price shock that I cited uh, earlier in this talk. All right, so the last section is called consequences. Let us suppose, for the sake of argument, that the G7 economies will spend still more time near or at the zero lower bound. This would occur either because liftoff does not materialize in most or all countries or because additional negative shocks drive those countries that do raise their policy rates back to the zero lower bound. Prudent monetary policymaking suggests that we should at least entertain this as a realistic possibility for the path of G7 monetary policy in coming years. What are the consequences of remaining in such a state for such a long period of time? I can think of six consequences based on the discussion in the earlier part of the speech. First, consider the near-zero policy path illustrated on the right-hand side of figure one. In that situation, promising to keep the nominal interest rate sequence at the zero lower bound simply reinforces the equilibrium and does not provide accommodation as in the traditional New Keynesian equilibrium. Nothing happens in response to such promises. Policymakers would have to come to grips with this situation. Second, in such a situation where we're zero nominal interest rates and low inflation, inflation remains persistently below the stated inflation target. The near-zero policy rate is not putting upward pressure on inflation, but is instead, through the Fisher equation, dictating a rate of inflation lower than the original target. It could be that monetary policymakers do not intend to return to the original equilibrium. That is, they may intend to remain with the near-zero policy rate. In that case, policymakers may wish to lower the inflation target to remain more consistent with the actual inflation outcomes that are being generated. Third, long-run economic growth would still be driven by human capital accumulation and technological progress, as always, but without the accompanying stabilization policy as conventionally practiced from 1984 to 2007. In principle, the economy would still be expected to grow at the pace dictated by fundamentals. Fourth, the celebrated Friedman rule would arguably be achieved so that household and business cash needs are satiated. In many monetary models, this is a desirable state of affairs. Fifth, the risk of asset price fluctuations may be high. In the new Keynesian model, the near zero interest rate with little or no response to incoming shocks is associated with equilibrium indeterminacy. This means there are many possible equilibria, all of which are consistent with rational expectations and market clearing. In a nutshell, a lot of things can happen. So many of the possible equilibria are exceptionally volatile. One could interpret that theoretical situation as consistent with the idea that excessive asset price volatility is a risk. Sixth, and finally, the limits on operating monetary policy through the ordinary short-term nominal interest rate adjustment in this situation would surely continue to fire a search for alternative ways to conduct monetary stabilization policy. The favored approach during the past five years in the G7 economies has been quantitative easing, and there would surely be pressure to use this or related tools. Okay, conclusion. During 2015, I've been an advocate of beginning to normalize the policy rate in the U.S. My arguments, and, and I still am, uh, my arguments have focused on the idea that the economy is quite close to normal today based on an unemployment rate of 5%, which is essentially the committee's estimate of the long-run rate, and inflation net of the 2014 oil price shock only slightly below the committee's target. Yeah. The committee's policy settings, in contrast, remain as extreme as they have ever been since the 2007 to 2009 crisis. 
The policy rate remains near zero, and the Fed's balance sheet is more than $3.5 trillion larger than it was before the crisis. Prudence alone suggests that since the goals of policy uh, have been met, we should be edging the policy rate and the balance sheet back to more normal settings. Implicit in that argument has been a yearning to return to the monetary equilibrium of 1984 to 2007, which is one around which a great deal of theory and empirical work has been done. We would be returning to a world in which monetary policy is better understood, the effects of policy are more closely calibrated, and private sector expectations can move and adapt more naturally to ordinary adjustments of the policy rate. My current views have not changed, but in the spirit of the conference, I've tried to contribute to the topic of rethinking monetary policy by focusing on a situation where the nominal rate and inf the inflation rate remain low, either because liftoff does not materialize or because future negative shocks to the economy force a return to the ZERP. I've illustrated by reference to relatively new research how such a situation could become permanent. In addition, I have suggested several consequences of remaining in such an equilibrium over the long term. It is my hope that characterization, my characterizations here will spur further thinking and research on these important topics, and hopefully, hopefully I'm spurring further thinking right this very minute in this very room. So thank you for your kind patience in uh, hearing me out here, and I appreciate your attention. Thanks a lot. I'll take them here. Okay, I'll just. Okay. So we have about uh, ten minutes for Q and A. Uh, please wait for the microphone to come to you if 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 I call on you and uh, announce your affiliation. And please, uh, no speeches. Let's keep it short so uh, President Bullard could answer several questions. So if you just want to raise your hand, uh, George. Hi, I'm, I'm George Selgin, the director of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. I, I, I wanted to uh, uh, ask you uh, to respond to uh, uh, a reaction to this, the Cochrane argument, because frankly, I, I think uh, I, I have a vision right now of Irving Fisher spinning in his grave. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like what, what's really going on there is he's just, he's just assuming that the, that the public... Uh, uh, treats the uh, expected inflation rate as whatever the goal of the Federal Reserve policy is or whatever is required uh, to keep the Fisher relation holding when whatever the Fed does to the uh, target interest rate. But that's like saying that the public just obligingly increases its demand for money balances to compensate for any Fed open market operations so that the interest rate can go to the new target without prices being affected. Isn't this kind of confusing normal causal relationships that, uh, of the sort that Fisher as a monetarist and you in your monetarist <laughs> mood <laughs> take for granted? Uh, no, it's uh, turning our typical interpretations from the uh, 1970s experience on their head and uh, uh, but it is consistent with uh, it's one way to interpret the model. It is consistent with uh, everything else that's going on in the model. Um, so uh, it is a challenge to the way we've been thinking. If you know Cochrane's work, he's worked a lot on the ideas about uh, you know equilibrium determinacy and indeterminacy and stuff like that in the New Keynesian model. And we have this idea that 
the reason the equilibrium that we like to talk about is enforced is because if you get off that equilibrium path, everything explodes. And he said, well, that's unrealistic as a way to enforce your equilibrium concept. So a lot of this has to do with uh, just taking the same raw material that you got from the New Keynesian uh, literature and saying, how should you think about the equilibrium concept in light of what has actually happened? Look at what has actually happened. You've been at the zero bound for seven years. According to conventional theory, inflation should have taken off, especially after 2012. That's why I like this picture. After 2012, January 2012, you know, inflation was above target in the US, and we still have very low policy rates. You would have thought you know, inflation would start to rise further, and the Fed would have been forced to raise interest rates. None of that happened. So. I think we're going to do, this is Peter. We're going to do media later, I think, Peter. Are you going to allow media in here? Well, I want, uh, right. is that okay? Yeah. Uh, just, just, we'll uh, let you in. Thank you. <laughs> uh, some of the candidates on the campaign trail are rethinking the role of the Fed. Um, we had a little debate on Tuesday night in which uh, we heard several of the Republican candidates criticize the Fed um, for keeping interest rates low, some charging for political reasons. Uh, Ted Cruz said the Fed needs a rules, legislated rules-based policy. You know what Rand Paul says as well. Uh, and then some said that uh, uh, that they should, that Janet Yellen should be replaced and supported audit the Fed legislation. I was just curious to get your reaction to those, number one. And number two, if you're concerned that if any of these gentlemen or, or the lady get into the White House, that uh, this could lead to uh, new restrictions on the Fed's uh, powers and its independence. Thanks. Well, I mean, I appreciate the candidate's interest in the Fed. I do think it's an important uh, issue uh, for, for both parties, and, the, and Congress and the President should always be thinking about how to arrange, uh, how to make monetary policy arrangements in the U.S. and how to get good decisions made. I do think our current system has worked fairly well over the past 100 years. I expect it to work well uh, going forward, uh, but it's certainly up to Congress and the President to decide uh, how they want to do this. I, I would say in the context of this talk, you know, I come from a monetarist uh, tradition. We had a certain way of thinking about what a zero interest rate policy would do. And I think you ha you know, after seven years, you have to start to rethink uh, a little bit uh, what your traditional model is saying and what the empirical evidence is saying. So that's why I presented it this way. I think we have time for one more question. I think uh, you're going to be around. Uh, yeah, I'll be around all day, actually. So, yeah. so you can throw things at me later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm going to slightly disagree with the traditional monetarist interpretation. Uh, in 1998, Milton Friedman said, low interest rates, referring to Japan, are a sign that money has been tight. Yep. And that's, that's a, a different interpretation from what you're describing as sort of the classic view of low interest rates. They'd already been low for quite some time in Japan. And he was obviously referring to the longer run effect, uh, the Fisher effect. But I think the difference between Friedman and the neo-Fisherians is he, he, he thought interest rates didn't really characterize monetary policy. So yep. it could be tight or it could be easy depending on what caused that. Whereas it seems like the neo-Fisherians just sort of start from the premise that the interest rate completely characterizes monetary policy and go from there yep. without thinking about that second issue. That's a totally fair comment. So Friedman would often say that zero interest rates could be a sign of tight policy, uh, not easy policy, and that you should focus on monetary aggregates and stuff. So 
Uh, and of course, we've uh, done a lot of that at St. Louis Fed over the years. But um, this argument is just saying uh, I'm going to I'm going to take sort of the Woodford model hook, line, and sinker. I'm going to I'm going to swallow everything about it, and I'm going to give you a different characterization of what it's saying uh, will happen. And uh, so it does not delve into where's the money demand and uh, who's holding the money and all this kind of stuff. And why don't you supply the right amount of money in order to get the right inflation rate? Yeah. I think we'll. Okay. Thanks very much. <laughs>